crypto in the last at least two to three years has definitely been a buzzword. It's almost like the discovery of gasoline. Part of the crypto and blockchain culture today is don't trust anybody. That's what keeps me diving yep. into this space more and more is no one knows the answer right now. Welcome, everybody. This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 61. Today, we have with us uh, Sawyer Miller, who's our ISO practice leader and a security expert. And then we have Lance Watley, who's a crypto professional and a founder of Mutography. So in the world of crypto, there's a ton of, I guess, opportunity uh, to make money, to create new products. But one of the things that have not been uh, well documented or still emerging is how does security and risk management fit into blockchain technology, crypto, that whole ecosystem, especially as we see institutional investors get involved, larger companies form with this underlying technology. So we're trying to answer some of the questions today. Like, what should you be thinking about from a risk management or security perspective? Um, and maybe a good way to get kicked off here is, uh, Lance, you're really the crypto expert. How did you get into crypto in the first place? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, crypto in the last at least two to three years has definitely been a buzzword. Um, everyone wants to know what it is, how, to, how they get in, involved and uh, even some invested some money into it and uh, potentially made some gains. But um, I think that what appealed to me was the idea of, of being able to uh, of decentralization in, in, uh, in and of itself. So the idea that no central entity owns your data or even your funds that you own them and you control them. Um, I think that a lot of people value uh, that particular property of the blockchain and uh, of crypto in general. So it's really cool that you can kind of custody your own funds and, and have complete control of them without some third party or some centralized entity managing that. Um, and, and to go a step further, I'm obviously a developer by nature, I'm technical uh, I have a technical background for the last 10 to 15 years and um, been writing software professionally for the last six to eight years, at least, if not longer at this point, I have to count my days. Um, but uh, I think that being able to to build and execute business logic, whatever that may be, um, on some decentral, decentralized infrastructure where no you know single entity, single person, single server exists, that it's it exists worldwide and that you can execute you know, business logic to be able to serve some purpose. Um, today, today, the, you know, the traditional thing that we think about when we think of blockchain and crypto is fintech or some, some, uh, you know, being able to manage your funds and, and, uh, um, you know, your finances by yourself and, and you controlling it. But, um, I like to be, I like the idea of being able to write software to serve some purpose and then being able to build it and execute it, um, without a single person or single entity, you know, controlling that. Yeah. And, and for context for the listener, I should have mentioned this on the onsite. Lance was an engineer at Risk360, so helped build our platform, uh, Phalanx, before launching his own company. And we have a lot of folks here at Risk360 that I would say are uh, enthusiasts in the crypto space, either heavy investors or thinking about the security link or business cases. And Lance, you're the, the first one to, to make the leap and start a business out of it. So Lance uniquely understands the world of security and crypto and some of the context we're going to talk about today. So maybe a way to get into it is, Lance, you sent us over some some security risk and Sawyer and I, we've, we've been talking about this in the background for a while. So I kind of broke this conversation up in a couple layers. And where I want to start is 
if I'm an institutional investor or maybe I'm getting into crypto and I'm thinking about this from a B2B perspective, what are some of the risks? Because um, you hear about the bugs, some of the stuff at the source code level that are sometimes problems at, at companies. Maybe I'll kick it to you, Sawyer, for this. Um, like, what should we be thinking about? What are some of the biggest security type risk at the blockchain level? Yeah, I, I, the question I had around this is, um, you know, you've been on both sides of the table, Lance. You've developed software for B two B SaaS applications, um, and now as well as blockchain solutions. How does developing within each of those sort of ecosystems differ? And what are sort of nuanced security concerns that you have to keep in mind when you're working on the the blocks uh, blockchain side of the table? Yeah, so the I would say that the most significant uh, difference, which is nothing uh, nothing technically different about between traditional web based applications and, and blockchain applications, but uh, the most challenging thing I think is that today, the, the, given the state of crypto and blockchain, that everything is moving extremely fast relative to to your traditional, uh, your traditional software company or software vendor and business. Um, so, you know, at this point, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to ship product out the door quickly and, and, you know, there are times and there are are things that likely, uh, that are likely, uh, you know, not tested as thoroughly as you may want. Um, or, or, you know, you have to, you have to effectively weigh the cost benefit, um, you know, does it, do, do we need to ship product? Uh, Facebook's old motto was move fast and break things. Um, or, you know, do we do, do we, do we thoroughly test it at the risk that we lose out on potential investors, um, you know, or potential users of the product if somebody else comes out with something bigger and better? I'm, I'm coming at this a little bit from an outsider's perspective. So like there's things that worry me from an outsider's perspective or from a company's perspective. And one of the, some of the things I hear, like some of the nightmare stories that, that you guys tell me or that I hear otherwise, or for example, bugs in code, maybe, maybe something crazy like every transaction is doubled or uh, people are locked out of, uh, they can buy, but then they're locked out of the ability to sell. And this either comes in the uh, form of like true purpose-built vulnerabilities uh, in code or bugs, just pure bugs. And then when I look at the environment, I see a lot of uh, individual contributors, like just folks who are really smart developing software or companies that are moving really fast. I know, Lance, you've developed somewhat of a reputation for helping folks get out of hard problems and fix some issues for people. But if I'm in a company like, uh, and I also know there's Certic, just to throw it out there, there are like validation companies out there that are doing stuff too. But if you're advising a company, Lance, and, and they're trying to like have software that's not buggy, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about or how can they vet that? Yeah. So the most important, so by the way, your, your concerns are extremely valid and, and the idea of, of being able to buy, but not sell, which is in the crypto world, it's called a honeypot. Um, and then just, you know, logical, but logical flaws and bugs. Um, I mean, that, that exists all the time. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've definitely shipped my fair share of, of bugs in smart contracts and, um, you know, given the, or depending on the particular application that's being built or the particular, business logic we're trying to execute on the blockchain, there's certainly gaps that exist uh, regardless of what you're doing. And so the number one thing I think that that you can do to mitigate that is to get as many eyes as possible on your code um, and, and scrutinize it. So uh, you mentioned Certic and there's, there's, there's a number of auditors that are trusted in the crypto and blockchain space. Um, and, and if you, if, and I guess the, the downside from a developer and from a business standpoint of getting audited is that it's generally expensive. So depending on who you engage to execute an audit for your code, 
um, you can you can end up spending five to six figures, uh, you know, out of your pocket or whatnot to be able to um, get those audits done. And there's absolutely no guarantee that that an auditor is going to catch some some bug or some issue or some edge case to or flaw in your business logic based on what you're doing. Um, yep. They're really good at it. You, uh, they're getting better and better. Um, but you obviously sign a big red disclaimer when you get an audit from a company that says we're not responsible for issues that may arise uh, after we've conducted an audit and give you some final yep. report. Yeah, so, Risk 360 is the same way, right? We're doing audits all the time. It's not absolutely yeah. absolute assurance. You can only gain a reasonable amount of assurance. So exactly. to your point, Lance, yeah, I mean, they, they can review the code all day long, but something could still flip through and I interrupted yeah. you there. So, so yeah, you get an auditor perhaps to look through it. What, what other things are you looking through to kind of get comfort around someone's product that you might be using? Yeah. So, um, I think the first thing I do, and I think this is, this is kind of where, so I'm obvious, I'm certainly, I'll be the first to admit, not definitely not the most, uh, the smartest person in crypto or anything of that regard. I'm certainly probably relatively average from a developer standpoint, but the, the one thing you can do is, is, uh, build a reputation of honesty and trustworthiness and, and basically giving that, given that, that, that warm and fuzzy feeling whenever you engage with somebody else that they know that you're not that you have their best interest uh, in heart and you're you're trying to better and further the crypto and blockchain community and space um, but so, so to answer your question the first thing I do is look at a team page or look and see who's behind the project or behind the the, the product that I'm trying to use and one of the things in crypto that's that's really common I would say that upwards of uh, particular, particularly in the smaller the smaller projects that are just getting started, it's extremely common for the team to remain anonymous. And so, um, you know, it's it's definitely uh, you definitely got to weigh your cost benefit um, if you want to invest in something a project that may have an anonymous team. Um, some anonymous teams have extremely reputable developers. They they the developer himself or herself are anonymous. But th their their handle is known well in the space. But they, for whatever reason, they want to remain anonymous and not disclose their actual identity. And so, um, you know, personally, I, I like a what we call do doxed team, and, and dox just means uh, that that the their identity is disclosed out to the you know to the world. Um, yep. and, and that that effectively you know ensures that somebody's being held accountable for what they're doing, and that that that. It's certainly not a, or it's not a certainty by any means, but you you know that there's a good chance that they're actually in this for you know positive reasons. They're not they're not in this to be malicious or steal or or do anything that you know that that does exist in crypto today. That that we're trying to, I would love to see that uh, see us rid the crypto space from fraud and from scams and all the things that you hear about. But yeah, I don't think that's I don't think most people know that. So in the crypto space, there's people working on very important projects that are picking up steam that are completely anonymous for their own reasons. I think it's like largely part of the culture uh, because of decentralization, privacy. So it also kind of makes sense to be anonymous in some situations. But I don't think an institutional investor or business is going to do business. Well, they might, but they'll probably be skeptical if the team is anonymous. Whereas you're saying like one of the things you like to look for is if they're anonymous, at least having a really good reputation. And even better is if they've doxed themselves and kind of released their identity so that ultimately they can be held accountable. That's kind of a signal to the marketplace that they can be trusted and are willing to put their name on stuff. That's something you did. In fact, I think it's important context, right? I think you, if I recall correctly, you started off anonymous, but then when it became like a real business for you, you ultimately released your identity. Is, is that, I have that right? Yeah. So I've always had, I've always open sourced my code and I've always used my personal GitHub 
uh, account and, and my personal accounts to ship my code, um, which has always been publicly available. So technically, I've been doxxed from day one because if somebody really wanted, they could go and yep. find um, through my code and through source control. But yeah, uh, um, on an unofficial note or, or in an unofficial capacity, I've been sort of pseudo-doxed until relatively recently when I actually released my full identity. And I think it's primarily important just so people know that one, um, you know, I'm in this space and I'm, I, I want to be taken seriously, that this is something that I have a passion about and I, I, I want to further the, the space and the industry and blockchain and crypto, uh, not just not just the, you know, the, the technical details and being able to, to further expand decentralization to the world, but, uh, you know, the culture and stuff. It's super appealing. It's a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important if I'm doxxed that people can trust that what I'm doing uh, has good intent, um, yep. you know, and, and all those details. So so that that's true. So in terms of uh, blockchain in general, like I, I remember when I first started learning about it, um, I was very green. I just, you know, kind of followed an online guide and built like a like a Litecoin miner um, mm -hmm. in 2013, I think. Um, but when I first started learning about like what the ledger was and blockchain and all this stuff, um, you know, I was a little naive about it and it seemed kind of bulletproof. Um, it seemed like, you know, there's no way to fake a transaction. That means that, you know, this thing is completely secure. Um, but I was hoping you could expand on like, what are some of the downsides of that immutability? Like, what are some of the things that organizations or companies or, or even just tokens um, face with the risk of immutability? Yeah, so I think that from a developer standpoint, I can tell you that what I struggle with the most, um, and there are there are definitely methodologies and and uh, and and ways to sort of uh, hack is the wrong word, but sort of um, go around this. But the idea that when you, for me, I, you know, I'm deploying smart contracts to the blockchain all the time. Well, if I want to add a feature to a piece of functionality in a smart contract, you can't update the feature. You can't update the logic. What you can update is state, which is effectively like what exists, uh, for example, a balance, uh, your balance of a particular token. That's updated all the time through transactions. So that's that's what we consider state in there, but or in the in, in the blockchain and software world. What what you can't change is the core logic, fundamental logic. And so um, there there's there's um, what's the there's concepts such as proxying where you effectively have a front end uh, contract and then on the back end you can redeploy it and upgrade it, uh, upgradable contracts as they call them. But it's it's not it's certainly something that's difficult to implement, and it's it's not something that that yeah. people typically go to. Is um, that is that kind of the phenomena? Again, I'm going to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about here, so forgive me. But I've I've always heard, for example, and and this might be something that resonates with everyone is like a uh, Bitcoin is quote unquote older technology compared to say something like Ethereum, because the the you know the underlying technology can't necessarily be updated. Is that is that an example of phenomena you're talking about there? Um, a little bit. So, um, blockchains, obviously the, the goal, the, well, it's funny, the, uh, pun intended, the gold standard. And I say that pun intended because it is trying to be used as a, as a store of value. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so Bitcoin blockchain doesn't have a concept of smart contracts. It's, right. it's literally just assets that exist. And, uh, the value of it is driven, uh, at least today, almost exclusively by speculation. Um, but, um, you know, if you believe in blockchain uh, and, and crypto, then then you certainly can believe that Bitcoin has its place uh, in the world of you know of uh, 
you know, uh, a store of value, I guess. Um, but with Ethereum uh, and, and most other, so Ethereum's built on uh, a virtual machine that supports smart contracts being deployed to them. And, um, and, and so it's a little bit different than, than comparing Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's like comparing uh, apples and oranges to an extent. Sure. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it's challenging. Uh, um, th that's a challenge from a developer standpoint. But from an end user standpoint, immutability is, is a struggle if and when you potentially send funds to the wrong person. Um, or the wrong wallet. Um, that that's the most common use case. Where if you if you if you send some funds somewhere that you didn't mean to, there's no guarantee you can get it back. And in fact, I would say in most cases you can't. It's literally lost. Um, so that's that's one of the big challenges of of immutability. Um, but the the good thing is that everything's transparent. So while your identity behind a wallet may not be transparent. Um, you can always replay the blockchain and understand where things came from um, and basically the root or the source of where they came from. So from like an organizational perspective and a, a development perspective, if, uh, if I'm understanding you right, um, I, I put this into like our terms as a security uh, consulting firm, things like incident response, right? Like let's say, you know, there's, um, there's some kind of an unknown vulnerability that begins to get exploited and someone's, you know, taking funds from a smart contract or somewhere that they're not supposed to be taking funds from. Um, in like the, the B2B SaaS world, we could deploy like a hotfix, right? We could immediately kind of overwrite that code. Everyone that's on the cloud or, or you know, uh, that's hitting that instance of that piece of software um, gets the update, right? There's not really any action needed on their part. There might be some like disclosures you need to make, but there's not really anything they need to do to fix the problem. Um, versus a smart contract update, um, if you change the core logic of that smart contract, you have to, in fact, release a new smart contract that may, in fact, require users or holders, as they call them in crypto, to, like, migrate their tokens or, like, uh, you know, go in and click some buttons to be moved to this new smart contract. It, it seems like the, uh, the process is a little more in-depth and, and requires a little bit more uh, responsibility on the holder's part. Yeah, so as a developer, you can try to foresee and add logic to your contracts to accommodate situations where you might need to do an upgrade, a V1 to V2 upgrade, for example, um, and, and effectively try to automate as much as possible so you put you take the burden off of users that may be interacting with your smart contract. Um, but it's it, you're balancing between uh, true decentralization, and so so if you so. Uh, for example, if I, as a developer, I release a smart contract, uh, everyone, it's a staking contract. Uh, I have thousands of users that are staking to effectively earn yield or some, or some other, uh, you know, some other implementation of staking. Uh, and then I, I need to update that smart contract. Um, if I added a, effectively a backdoor or some sort of override logic to pull out all the funds and put them into another newly deployed smart contract, that's that's sort of risky, right? Because if somebody uh, if somebody were to, for example, access my wallet, they could do the same thing and effectively gain access to all those funds. So um, you're definitely balancing between centralization and decentralization, where the centralization comes in uh, if you want to have some sort of functions inside or some sort of logic that you can effectively override the the, the natural flow or the natural business logic in the system. And so true decentralized smart contracts don't have those overrides. Um, one, of the, one of the terms you'll hear a lot uh, in the DeFi space and, and, and with a lot of small cap new projects 
is renouncing ownership to their smart contract. So with token contracts, there's typically override functions that you can do various things. Um, but if you quote renounce ownership to the contract that you've deployed for your customers, your users, you effectively lose control. Losing control is is perceived by most users as a positive, right? Because they, they know that the the owner or the the deployer may not make or won't be able to go rogue and go access their funds. Um, but then you also lose control as a developer, and especially if you're somebody who's who's you know moral uh, morally driven and not going to do anything that's malicious. Uh, losing that control can have downsides as well. So there's definitely a balancing act with that. Um, but you know, it's definitely a challenge that that I deal with almost day in and day out, depending on what you know what what we're building and what we're doing. Yeah. So how do you balance? Um, call it the need or the uh, the, the uh, necessity of governance with decentralization. Cause I know, I, I mean, you know, I've been in the space for a while. I see like, you know, the people in telegram kind of crypto Twitter, right. This whole, like almost like a subculture, like Christian mentioned earlier, um, that is, is sort of obsessed with this idea of decentralization, right? It's, it's like a, I don't want to say it's like an anarchist mindset, but it's definitely this mindset of like, I don't want a central authority controlling, uh, this like value that, that belongs to me. Um, but at the same time, to some of the things you're talking about, that governance is almost um, it's almost more risky to, to have a total lack of governance. So how have you seen tokens and projects and companies in the space balance the need for governance um, while still keeping like a I guess like a decentralized um, spirit? Yeah, so um, so the, the most recent, it's, it's a newer concept. It's not brand new. It's certainly been around for a couple of years now. But the the concept that you're that that hits that exact nail on the head would be a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization. And the idea there is that you can effectively uh, deploy it's it, it in and of itself is a smart contract for the most part. Um, and effectively give voting rights to uh, holders of a particular token or or some other you know method that you want to be able to issue uh, voting rights, if you will. So from what I'm hearing, the the decentralized so they've there's an organization type in crypto in which allows you to maintain decentralization, but basically creates a democracy in that users of that are members of that particular organization structure can vote on yes no i want this change i'm going to allow it not going to, is it majority rule or is it like depending on the organization yeah great question so you can you can implement uh like how much power a particular user has however you want um and so you know you could you could technically say that the the whales uh, of a token you know th those that own the most amount of tokens would have more voting rights or you could say they have you know every wallet has equal voting rights regardless of how many tokens they own um, so it's completely up to you how you want to implement the the uh, the rights uh, of voters in a DAO. But that's the most traditional sense and uh, how you can sort of democratize uh, projects and and businesses that exist in crypto that revolve yep. around probably a token. That, that, that so so this is fascinating. I want to go on a thought exercise for now because I, I hear like I'm thinking about all the evolution that's happening here. You know, there's uh, new types of smart contracts being implemented. Sounds like, you know, there's probably a million different variations and then. Someone will come up with a really good idea and it'll get mass adoption and they'll roll it out to all the new projects. Then you got these new organization types in which you can structure the organization and the voting rights any way you want to. Um, I would imagine if, if we give this another decade, 
there's going to be a whole like it'll be much more mature than this today. Like for example, the way a DAO will look, someone will have figured out how to optimize fairness in that, and and everyone will implement that as a standard. The way a smart contract looks, there'll be uh, you know three dozen best practices that anyone legitimate is implementing, and so on. So are from your perspective, Lance, how rapidly is that changing? Are you seeing like a new set of best practices every year, every day? Is it kind of emerging? Do I have that right? I guess that's my assumption, but that sounds like it sounds like it's a rapid evolution. Bottom line, is that what you're seeing? That yes, that's exactly right. It's it's such a rapid pace that it's overwhelming almost all the time. There's always something changing. If you're not, if you don't have your, you know, if you're not on your toes watching space, the space evolve, then you're likely going to fall behind pretty quickly. Um, but you're exactly right. I expect that in uh, five to ten years that there are a set of best practices for ba virtually anything you want to do on the blockchain. So today you got you have projects that are deploying and, you know, different Inu meme tokens being deployed all the time and they have different, uh, you know, values and they want like minded people to invest in them. And then, you know, they can as a community evolve into whatever they want. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's absolutely there already are. And there's there seems like there's something new every single day with respect to processes and a standard uh, standardization across, you know, token contracts or uh, ways to implement different types of, you know, DeFi concepts and all that good stuff. So I liken this to like, uh, it's almost like the discovery of gasoline. It's like the number of things that people, you know, have done with like a combustible fluid when they first discovered it is just insane. But now when you think about something like gasoline, you're like, oh, it's an engine, right? It, it powers an engine, which drives a car or, you know, runs a leaf blower, or, you know, what have you. Um, and so there's this like standardized use of this like incredibly new, you know, uh, type of you know power or energy. Um, I, I kind of liken this space to that, and I, I think that we're going to start seeing very logical shifts in uh, organizational like functions um, that begin to rely more and more on blockchain. Like one thing that comes to mind, and I know this is obviously near and dear to you, Lance, is like the SDLC, right? So one thing we audit all the time is. Uh, you know, how did your code go from a developer's like local dev environment all the way through the process to be deployed into a production environment and customer facing? Um, and one of the like most important steps there is like an approval, right? It's a code review or it's some type of a authoritative uh, stamp that gets put on uh, that code change, uh, sometimes more than one throughout the process. And so like um, I know that there's this notion in in, uh, in the crypto space of like, multi-signature wallets and like this ability for uh, some action to require uh, more than one like uh, communications from a single wallet. Um, is it like, can you talk about how those two things can kind of like merge together as like just a, a potential or um, example use case of like blockchain in our everyday sort of B2B software lives? Yeah, so I would say that the SDLC is pretty much the exact same across normal web development or your typical, you know, software development that you see day in and day out that's not crypto related and crypto software development. Um, but what, what is different, though, is related to when you, you know, when you deploy a smart contract, um, you know, issuing ownership to, like you said, a multi-signature wallet, which keep in mind that that in and of itself is a smart contract. So. All it effectively do, does is implement uh, rules, in which case there has to be multiple wallets that sign a particular transaction to be executed. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would say that the SD, the, the software development lifecycle that exists from, from, you know, ideation all the way through to deployment of your application or, or whatever it is you're trying to do on a blockchain is, is very similar, if not the exact same as it, as it exists in any other 
tech startup or tech business that, that, that you know, deploys software uh, as a part of doing business. Um, but yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly differences in, uh, you know, um, if a particular smart contract or some sort of, some sort of, uh, business logic that you've implemented on the blockchain, uh, has what, whether it be, uh, overridden functions or, or backdoor, I, the backdoors makes it sound like it's a, it's a, it's unintentional, but really override functions to be able to have authoritative or authority types of, uh, power on a smart contract, implementing that on top of a multi-signature wallet effectively lowers the risk in order to uh, in order to require multiple wallets. So if a private key gets breached, for example, they couldn't uh, the, the attacker or the, the stealer of that private key couldn't effectively execute the override function or functions because they need multiple private keys in order to do that. So, so I think we, I th- the use case I'm hearing, Sawyer, is if like you could think like the release management lifecycle of SDLC, where like if one engineer tries to release, they literally could not do it without someone else in a different wallet signing off on it too and and allowing that to go through. So you could like basically force uh, a segregation of duties or or things like that through multi-sig wallets. Is that what you're thinking, Saul? Yeah, it's it's almost like a new uh, control type, right? Like we have these like quote unquote technical controls, but these uh, technical controls can be worked around. uh, You know, you can sort of do things in ways that, you know, let you, uh, get around the intended uh, mechanism, uh, but with the potential of, you know, think about a company like GitHub, right? If GitHub, you know, integrated some version of the blockchain with uh, how they allow changes to be, you know, published to code repos, um, that could literally change the way that we do business. Um, and it's a learning curve too, right? It's like, uh, I could see this being, you know, a lot of companies not seeing this as some, you know, wonderful, amazing innovation, but, but some kind of a, you know, huge administrative burden that's going to uh, create a lot of friction internally. So I, I certainly see the like barriers to adoption here as well. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's got me thinking about, you know, best practices with regards to changes in general. Um, like one of the things you talked about was like a compromise of a private key. Um, you know, we ran uh, a, essentially a data analysis across all of the you know hundreds of assessments that we've done over the years and one of the top results was um, from ISO assessments specifically it's control uh, 10.1.2 key management procedures and that was a one of the most com- I think it might have been the most common finding out of literally every single you know 114 NXA controls in ISO so hearing that um, what kind of implications can that have in the blockchain space? If people are not taking key management seriously, I mean, um, would you say that's like a, you know, end all be all for some of these, uh, these organizations? It's huge. Uh, particularly when you look at exchanges that, that are custodying and have access to hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. Um, you know, a private key getting breached or getting uh, compromised means potentially hundreds of millions to billions of dollars being, being lost. And so, there's absolutely, and uh, in, in your your uh, most reputable or credible exchanges implement risk mitigation around that. Where, for example, a particular wallet can only hold a maximum of X amount of uh, funds at any given point in time, and they have, you know, hundreds to thousands of wallets that have a bunch of different amounts of funds or whatnot. Um, so there's definitely ways to mitigate that. But private key management is is probably the single most uh, uh, b- biggest risk to to what is going to cause us the adoption to be slowed or, or slower than we may want for crypto. 
it's funny because as a developer, uh, we like things to be done as quickly as possible and as easy, yeah. easy as possible. And sometimes that's at the that's at the at risk of of uh, or that's at risk of of uh, introducing bugs or introducing some sort of of uh, you know jumping through hoops, if you will. Um, and and it's funny as a uh, people have reached out to me to audit their token contracts or to audit their their uh, you know code or you know whatever they're doing. And I usually tell them like I would I, I I actually refuse most of the time for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, you know I'm not an auditor. I don't have I haven't been trained in that. But auditors, not just smart contract auditors in the crypto space, have like there there a lot of them are developers or most of them are developers, but they have a different skill set to look for things differently and look look for things in a different state of mind. Just like you guys as auditors have a different state of mind or have a different way of looking at things uh, than than me as a developer. So. While I was while my tenure at Risk Three Sixty, uh, while I was there, I realized that, and it was it was actually it provided a lot of value because while I didn't have to pick up a lot of the skills that you guys have as auditors, I could see I couldn't see through the lens that you guys saw it through, but I understood that it was different and why it was different, and then how you know you guys may not need the technical aptitude or the or the technical uh, skills on a very fundamental lower level, but you could still audit the the uh, the heck out of you know a, a company's software. Yeah, uh, Lance was on the receiving end of our ISO twenty seven thousand one audits. So uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you had firsthand experience. Like most of the auditors, to your point, aren't in the code developing it, but they're still pretty good at thinking about governance and asking hard questions and making you explain yourselves. So uh, you probably built up a healthy amount of empathy <laughs> during that. I'm I'm curious, Lance. Do you see a need in the space for like? Uh, it, it feels like. I would almost call it a penetration test, like a, a certic audit of a smart contract. I would almost liken that to a penetration test or maybe like a code scan of some type. But um, do you see the need for like, a, you know, assurance services, some type on the governance side, like someone examining not just, you know, what does the code look like, but who's behind the curtain, right? Who Who's the Wizard of Oz pulling the levers and, and yeah. uh, you know, pushing the buttons? I, I, I want to frame that a little bit different and get Lance's perspective on too, because that's, that's a good question. Because the way I'm thinking about this is you're seeing institutional investors or big companies that want to get in the crypto game. Either, either they want to like leverage some cool technology like decentralized data center services or whatever it might be. And there's a little bit of fear, perhaps healthy fear of like, how do I know getting in business with this cutting edge tech company isn't going to put my company at risk either because I want to invest in their you know, crypto coin or I want to use their technology, but there's no assurance vehicle in place right now. Like most crypto companies aren't getting a SOC 2 report or, or something like that. So right. you heard what Sawyer's asking the same question I am, but if I'm a big company trying to, to get some assurance around the folks that I'm going to do business with, like what does that look like today and what could it could it look like later? Yeah, so it really depends. So, like, if you're if you're looking at your Coinbase's and your Binance's, et cetera, they're likely going to have all of the the different audits, and and they're they're likely going to be compliant with all of your you know your standard regulatory frameworks that that you guys probably traditionally audit against. Um, but smaller and more agile teams that are that are brand new, such as myself, for example, um, you know, there's no there's no real uh, there's no there's no standard in place. There's no benchmark to, to, you know, in order for us to, other than just getting your smart contracts audited, in which case I imagine that the auditors are in fact, uh, depending on what's being audited and, and, you know, what they're doing, they, they likely deploy the smart contracts to a testnet and test them. I don't, I doubt they're doing that for every audit they get particular or depending on, you know, how large it is, but 
um, that's probably the equivalent of what a penetration test is in the crypto world today. And, um, you know, it, it, just like a penetration test won't be able to potentially, you know, find every little nook and cranny uh, inside of your code or your interfaces that talk to, you know, talk outbound. Uh, audit won't either. But um, but I definitely see that any any company that wants to be taken seriously, any blockchain or crypto company that wants to be taken seriously in the long term will absolutely pro almost always need to get the same type of compliance uh, that you'd see today in any, any, you know, particular high growth tech startup um, that, you know, you guys probably do business with over at Risk360. Um, you know, it's not, there's no standard, there's no standards in place for that. Um, and I would, I would say that it, there's really no excuse for it. There certainly needs to, that certainly needs to exist. I think that the, the fast pace of the space is what's preventing, you know, every, every, every safety mechanism from being implemented by every, every project or every business that opens up that is a crypto business. And so that's really it. Um, and, and then, and then, uh, you know, uh, everyone that, that loves crypto probably has some uh, hatred uh, against or has some sort of uh, agenda against regulation. But, you know, the, there's certainly going to be regulation that's implemented more and more and it'll probably it'll become, you know, the standard to, to be highly, a highly regulated, um, you know, space. And in that sense, there will be if there are, if we can't already use existing regulatory frameworks to get audited and compliant against in the crypto world, there will be some. And I have no doubt that they will there will be elements in that that new standard, whatever it may be, that encompasses all the existing ones today that, that again, you guys audit against. Yeah. What fascinates me is the fact that today at least right this is a zero-sum game like uh if you look at you know take a, a banking application if someone hacks a banking application and wires themselves 10 grand out of my account um i just call the bank and you know they put it back because they're fdic insured and they can do that um but with a lot of these tokens and projects it just simply doesn't work that way um you can't you know generate the value out of thin air which has its ups and downs, right? If you talk about, you know, things like inflation, that's that's one of the hottest topics with regards to comparing, you know, fiat currency to, to crypto. But um, I'm curious, I mean, do you think that this will ever not be a zero-sum game? Do you think that there, like, is, is the inherent value that blockchain offers the fact that it is directly tied into the currency or the, the store of value or the token? Or do you think that there could be some intermediary la layer in there um, that, you know, we're just not... On top of yet or that we haven't really thought through yeah i mean i i think uh it it depends i think is the answer and, and it depends for a number of reasons um i i you know part of the crypto and blockchain culture today is is uh they don't you know don't trust anybody like you know you can trust the blockchain because there's not some person that's likely uh, biased in some case or that has some motive under the hood it's literally just business logic on on you know a decentralized network of computers that executes based off of some consensus protocol and so um that you know that's a huge part of the culture is like I, you know i trust i trust the blockchain but i don't trust my bank i don't trust the government etc cetera, etc cetera. and so um you know i i think that the ideas of decentralization and, and lack of intermediary will will exist as long as crypto does because that's why people are in it in the first place is to get rid of the intermediary but there will but th there has to be some sense of one just regulation in general in order to protect people i mean I, the, the biggest you know while while probably not always uh, implemented in practice the i think that the spirit of regulation is to protect people and so i am certainly you know I, I think it needs to happen um, as long as the, you know, the fundamentals of the regulation or whatever happens is to protect people. 
and how that would how that would look in a sense that, for example, if you saw your uh, sent some funds to the wrong address and can you recover them? Um, you know, is there need to be some insurance policy in place to be able to recover them? Uh, and what does that look like? Because the blockchain doesn't belong to any one person. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough to see what that would actually look like. Personally. I don't think anybody's going to like endorse a clearinghouse, right? Because I I'm keep coming back to like what you said earlier, like there's this balance between decentralized, decentralized and centralized. And anytime you start talking about a clearinghouse, clearinghouse for coins or a regulatory authority or anything like that, that's that kind of introduces a new set of risks that the decentralization mitigated against. So you're in a, a weird spot. So uh, for context, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are in like the GRC space. And they probably look a lot like me in terms of background, meaning they're situationally aware of crypto, but, but only on the surface. So... I'm thinking, where does crypto meet mainstream? And some of the stuff that excites me is I see uh, like decentralized data center services. That's pretty cool. Like I, I see that working. I see some social media like Mastodon instances that are decentralized. And there's podcasting 2.0 that's uh, 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 blockchain based. And there's others. There's other a lot of other stuff that's uh, developing use cases that are really cool. But what are y'all tracking? Like, what are some things that like if I'm a business and I'm looking for cool solutions. Are there other emerging tech or use cases for crypto that are interesting? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is a, a nice, nice time for a shameless plug, but uh, personally, I think, or I love the idea of being able to have complete control of your data. So, um, you know, if you, if you, if you store some data that somewhere, um, particularly in company, you know, uh, uh, inside of, co of companies, infrastructure, databases, et cetera, they have access to it and it's definitely ripe for breach. And so, couple of the, the dApps that I've created, uh, one is a password manager or account manager. And so the idea is that the data is, the ciphertext, the encrypted data is stored on the blockchain and only your, you have access to decrypt it with your private key of your wallet or whatnot. And so um, that's cool because, um, you know, today you have LastPass and a couple of other large players in the space of account and, private and uh, password management. But what happens if LastPass's databases get breached? Um, yeah, it's probably it probably would be a chore to figure out how to decrypt all the data that exists inside of their databases, but certainly not impossible. And so the you know short of of uh, breaching uh, you know AES 256 bit encryption, that's that's the level you'd have to go to in order to compromise the blockchain uh, you know uh, data that exists on the blockchain that's encrypted. So that's I mean that. That's just one. That's just one DAP. Um, the other one that we actually implemented inside of Risk 360's GRC platform is a trusted timestamping. The idea that you can validate that a piece of data existed in the past uh, is is a core component and certainly valuable um, and provides a lot of use cases for uh, one that I like that Sawyer brings up a lot or has brought up a lot in the past was related to validation that a, a database snapshot hasn't been compromised with. So if you if you're able to hash uh, the data the, the full database into a you know SHA two fifty six hash, and then at a later point in time you hash it, um, you know it hasn't been compromised with if it's the exact same hash. And so we did that with evidence collection uh, at Risk three sixty, and that's a you know obviously we're not we're not storing the data anywhere. We're just storing a signature that validates that this data did exist in the past. Um, that was long winded, but my my point is is that what I look for is ways and ways to uh, change the narrative and change the way in which your personal data can be stored, uh, you know, digitally 
but without being inside of somebody's you know centralized data database or data or infrastructure or data center somewhere that you know somebody has a key to go inside and, and take out the box if they want that right. sort of thing. So when I think about that question, Christian, um, if you look at like ISO twenty seven thousand one, that's sort of my my sweet spot, right? That's where I live most of my day. Um, there's the triad of things that you should concern yourself with with regards to information security. It's confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Um, and what's uh, so unique about the blockchain is that it enables you to accomplish all three of those without centrally overseeing the resources that handle the data. So from that, you can extrapolate literally millions of business cases, right? It could be anything. So like a decentralized file share means that, you know, my computer and 20,000 other computers that participate in this network for, you know, XYZ token um, are actually lending their hardware to process the uh, information that the customers of this network need processed. But the difference is that my machine doesn't know anything, uh, you know, proprietary about the data that it's touching. And so anything from, you know, centralized or decentralized uh, credential management through to, you know, a full-blown, you know, health profile that you truly own, right? Imagine having a private key that only you own, you know, it could be a, a token or something on your phone, or it could be a card in your wallet, it could be whatever. But, but what it is in technical terms is a key that literally gives a health provider access to your health data that can be revoked or taken back. Like think about the societal implications of that. Um, it, it's, it truly is like a, a groundbreaking uh, you know, way of processing data. You know, we're in this information age and this yeah. is like, in my mind, this is the new way of handling information across, um, across networks. I've almost likened it as a mental exercise to like a modern social security number. Because if you if you could imagine at birth you're assigned this private key and you can vote with that private key, you can store your electronic health records with that, you can apply for government benefits, you can participate on social media and internet. Like there, you know, the use cases are infinite, which which almost makes me think that it's a certainty that some major government like the U.S. is gonna, uh, you know, adopt that so that they can at least have some semblance of control on it because. So, so it's a really interesting thing because there's like macro forces at play. You got like privacy, which is on top of mind for everyone. Facebook doing stuff like Meta, uh, COVID passport. There's a lot of stuff people are just concerned about privacy. Then you have uh, cloud computing, which is mega centralized. And then you have crypto. And then you have like theoretical stuff like uh, quantum computing that are all emerging and, and in some ways competing with each other for interest and how you would go about yeah. doing business. And it's unclear if you fast forward out into a decade, which is going to win out or are there going to be factions where like some companies prefer the decentralized model, some prefer the centralized, yeah, et cetera. It's, so, this is uh, probably a, a crude comparison, but it's kind of like warfare, right? It's like the higher, like the more uh, we move into this like blockchain era in my mind, the higher the stakes, like it's, you know, it's like, Thousands of years ago, people fought with, you know, sticks and rocks, right? But now we have nuclear warheads. <laughs> and so it, it, you're kind of in that same state. Like imagine this idea of, you know, having all this control over your data, but you can also lose that control just as quickly. Um, and so 
you know, you think about philosophically the reason that like centralized authority exists and the reason that societies have not only stood up but desired these centralized authorities, um, you get into a very like deep philosophical battle of like, where's the line? Um, and, you know, who wins out in the end? And that's, that's what keeps me diving yep. into this space more and more is no one knows the answer right now. So speaking of diving in, oh, go ahead, Lance. Get I would out. say this, this, this is slightly disconnected from crypto, but a, a, a similar battle that exists today uh, in society is, which it does, it does have to do with crypto to an extent, but would be automating versus not automating or automation yeah. versus not automation. The more automation, the less, you know, potential jobs there are for people. And that leaves people, you know, jobless. And so, you know, what do we, how do we implement policy in order to accommodate that? But uh, that, that, that could be its own podcast later. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, to my knowledge, there's not like a university teaching crypto. Maybe there is, but, but you know, it's, it's hard to, in some ways it's hard to acquire this knowledge if you don't know where to look, but obviously people are rapidly self-educating. We're talking to two folks right now that self-educated on this. So if I'm a GRC or security professional, one, I'm going to, I'm just going to, my opinion is this is the future. You have to acquire these skills, period. It's going to be a significant enough piece of the economy and there's going to be enough business use cases where if you fast forward 10 years out, you will need this skill to be an effective security professional in all likelihood. Or you'll have a hyper niche job and very well paid because you're one of the few people with this skill. So that's the assumption I'm operating on. But where can someone go to start acquiring this knowledge? Like Sawyer and, and you too, Lance, how, how did y'all become... I'll call you experts, but how did you acquire the, the expertise in this? So space? my answer to that, um, it's kind of funny, right? I kind of let the market tell me what's important. And the way I do that is I literally go to coinmarketcap.com, which is a website that tracks all of the reputable cryptocurrencies out there. Um, and it's got a, a literally, you know, almost by the second updating list of prices and market caps and tokens. And there's thousands of them in there. Um, and I kind of started on the top 100 page, right? It's like you see Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you're like, okay, I've heard of those. You know, you can read a little bit about those, but go down to number 50, go down to number 70. These are literally billion plus dollar businesses that are running that you've never heard of, and you have no idea what they do. And there are people just throwing money at this thing. And so that tells me it's important. So I'll go start reading about those and understand what do they offer the market. Um, and just by studying those, um, it's introduced me to just a litany of terms, like almost a crypto dictionary, if you will. Um, and then you start going in, in deeper with the ones you really like the ideas of. And you look at like their Telegram groups. That's where communities come together, or like their Discord servers or their uh, their Medium articles. That's, that's kind of where a lot of them are writing their blogs and, and stuff like that. Um, and it's very raw. I mean, it's like you're, you're going to get exposed to some of the like goofiest, craziest people in terms that you've ever seen in your life. Um, you're going to see memes and stuff that you're like, what am I doing right now? Um, but then you read this one white paper, or this one like technical disposition of what this you know project does. And you're like, this is incredible. I mean, th th these are people literally like inventing the new type of electricity type stuff. This is incredible. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I'm a, I obviously being technical, I'm more of a hands-on learner. So I like to be able to, to see something in action and, and, you know, pull some strings and be able to see something change. And so, um, if you handed me a book of, you know, writing smart contracts, I likely wouldn't get very far, but, um, you know, there's courses online, uh, I'll particularly on Udemy that I've used in order to go from your first line of code written in solidity, which is the, the most common uh, programming language that you write smart contracts and deploy them to the an Ethereum uh, EVM based blockchain, which is just Ethereum and all the forks. 
um, all the way through to building a front end, which is usually just a web, a web front end to interact with the smart contract on the blockchain. And so um, highly recommend, you know, checking out, you know, some Udemy courses um, and I can, I can shoot you over some links after the podcast, Christian, but um, you know, th that's, that's really where I got my feet wet with some technical uh, being able to get technical and write smart contracts and be able to like say that you've deployed code to the blockchain. And that was really exciting. I think that um, I, I've shared some of these resources outbound with some community members and uh, it's fun to watch, you know, their eyes light up when they, when they see the same thing happen. So um, highly recommend it if you're, if you're at all uh, an engineer or a tinkerer and like to see some things come together like that. Awesome. I'll include those links that you send me and, and Sawyer sends me into the, uh, if you're listening to this on YouTube, I'll put them in the description or if I'm in the podcast, I'll put them in the podcast description so everybody can get them. Lance, uh, I know we're almost at time here. You're working on some really cool stuff. Um, I think I would recommend anyone listen to this, track what you're doing. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's awesome. So where can folks track your work or get in touch with you? Yeah, so right now um, I'm leading development and and basically uh, next steps and, and building a business, uh, a crypto project called OK Let's Go. And so um, it's it's uh, it's a rebrand of, of basically Moontography, which is what my alias in the crypto world is. Um, but, you know, we, we have a suite of dApps of decentralized uh, uh applications that that do various things b2b and b2c different dApps um we're building upon that suite day in and day out um you know we, we, it's uh it's really exciting like i said super fast paced but uh oklg.io is the website go there check it out you can you can hit up all the links we're on coin market cap uh which and, and all of your uh you know your token listing uh websites but definitely some cool things happening um uh but yeah i would, I would say start there or you, uh, if, if you guys want to connect with Lance on LinkedIn, Lance Watley on LinkedIn. I know a lot of folks are on that too. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. This is an awesome conversation. I appreciate your time and uh, until we talk again. Hey, thank you for watching Tuesday Morning Grind podcast. If you like content just like this from cybersecurity executives, thought leaders, hackers, then come on over to risk360.com. Check out our resource center where we have blog posts, white papers, videos, all for free that can teach you about cybersecurity. If you want to know more about cybersecurity certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, PCI, High Trust, and others, we have a ton of content on that. So whatever you're looking for, we have a lot of resources. Head on over to risk360.com, shoot us a note, and we look forward to keeping the conversation going.